All right, welcome to the Compass Church, everybody. We got a, a special series that we're diving into. It's called Rethink. I have never done a series like this at the Compass Church before. It's in the arena of apologetics. Are you familiar with that term? Apologetics is the study of the reasons we believe, or the evidence, if you will, for our faith. Some people think that thinking, uh, you know, reason is not really a part of Christianity. Oh no, you're wrong there. God has provided amazing evidence. This series is just three weeks, and, and it's tackling the biggies. The evidence for the existence of God, the evidence that demonstrates Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, and the evidence for the Bible. That's week three. The evidence that helps us see the Bible as the Word of God, the the divine book given to us so that we can know the Lord's truth. And so, you ready? Some of you are like, man, this sounds like school. (laughs) Wake up. Turn on the brain. It's time to rethink. And I'm real excited to dive into this first week because this is the evidence for God, which was my issue. I'll be honest with you, as a young person, I really struggled to believe that God was there. It all, it all started back when I prided myself a scientist. Uh, in my high school days, I excelled at science more than my other subjects. And so I determined early on, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to study biology. This is going to be my, my area. And so I took all the AP science classes I could, and as I dove into that, one of the things I discovered is that many scientists are anti-Christian, theism, religion, altogether. They are what you call naturalists. A naturalist says, there is no supernatural. All that there is is the physical, visible realm. They're lovers of nature to a degree that they reject the supernatural, and I, I started to read about evolution and Darwinism and natural selection and started to read that any thinking person will reject the notion of God altogether. I started to realize that some scientists kind of mocked the belief in God as an embarrassing, uh, naive, immature notion. They're like, really? You've got an invisible friend to do you. Oh, kind of like the fairy, the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny. You know, tell me about your invisible friend. Does he talk? He does. Do you talk and walk with him? Oh, that's really. And I was like, come on, Jeff, do I really buy this? Is this whole religion bit just a crutch that humanity has invented to help us through hard times to try to have something? And, And I... As I progressed, I, by the age of 20, became what I'm going to describe as a closet atheist. Wasn't willing uh, to, to confess it to anybody. My, my girlfriend, my now wife, Jen, was the only one that I told of my struggle. But deep down, I felt that a good scientist is an atheist, someone who's been willing to reject fanciful notions and embrace hard, cold reality. And I was terrified. I didn't want to be an atheist, but I I thought that's where the facts lie. In fact, I thought science disproves God. That was kind of the conclusion I had come to. 
<laughs> you know what's fascinating? You know what got me out of my doubt and brought me to a belief? Science! The very thing that I thought was going to take away confidence in God's existence is what brought about confidence in God's existence. So we're talking science, baby. We're going to be looking. Uh, I got a bunch of uh, scopes here. Do you notice? I, I've got a telescope. I've got a, a microscope. I've got a doctor's otoscope. And well, we're going to take a look at the evidence. We're going to examine through the scopes uh, the evidence that's there. Because God wants us. God calls us to be scientists. I'll show you a verse that does just that. Romans 1, verse 20. Maybe one of my favorite verses. It says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, like his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. God's inviting us to analyze what has been made. Look at the creation, the world that he's made, because they proclaim his reality and his attributes. God says, uh, God in his infinite wisdom and strategy, this is what God did. God says, I'm going to go invisible. I'm not going to manifest myself visibly for people to see me for many reasons. But God says, I will make my reality plenty obvious in the created world that I put humanity in. God says they'll be able to see my brilliance by looking at the complexity of design. They will be able to see my creativity on display. They'll be able to see my relational nature as I make human beings loving relational beings. God says they'll be able to see my sense of humor. I'm going to make a giraffe with a neck this long and a zebra with stripes and a duck-billed platypus. They'll get a kick out of that. And God's Nature is on display. And this verse says, come on, look, study, observe, be a scientist. And so let's do that. Let's take a look. And some of these scientific discoveries are rather recent. In fact, in the last century, in all these centuries that humans have existed, only people of this last century have the incredible benefit to see the glory of God on display in the ways that we're going to look at. And so let's do so. Let's, let's start with the telescope. Uh, what, do you, what do you study with the telescope, huh? With the telescope, you gaze at the stars. And you know, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is his character on display. And so God's saying, look at the heavens. God's calling us to be uh, astronomers, or at least to study astronomy, because he's speaking through what he's made in the heavenly bodies. Well, I'd like to talk about a astronomer, local guy actually, grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, by the name of Edwin Hubble. Remember Hubble? He was the astronomer who helped create this telescope that enabled humanity to gaze deeper into space than anyone ever could. And the discoveries were just mind-boggling, coming one after another. First, they discovered that our galaxy is not the only galaxy. You know, before we could look that far, they kind of assumed that our galaxy, our set of stars, you know, was it. And then they realized, no, this universe is way bigger than we ever imagined. There are billions of galaxies, you know, and it's huge. 
But they discovered that not only is our galaxy bigger than we thought, it is finite. It's not infinite. And it's expanding. They were able to measure the, the distance or the movement of the galaxies and found that they're all moving away from each other. And, and then Edwin Hubble, he, he measured the rate of expansion. How fast is it expanding? And some started to speculate that maybe it's expanding, but then it'll contract, and then it'll expand, kind of like an accordion, you know? It just oscillates in that way. And they discovered, no, that's not the case. The rate of expansion is so great that the force of gravitational attraction will never be able. You know, gravity, the force is getting weaker the more it expands, and it'll never pull it together. And so we're looking at a one-time oscillation, if you will. We're looking at an expanse that's happening once and only once. And then they begin to speculate in reverse and saying, what does that mean? You know, if we're expanding never to contract, if we go back in time, what do we find? And they found that the, the, back in time, the further back you got, the smaller the universe would have been, smaller, 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 till there was a moment, what is it now called? The Big Bang. A moment when all time, space, and matter were condensed into an, in, you know, an, uh, a singularity. And in that moment, something outside of nature, a supernatural cause, an uncaused cause, brought this whole thing into existence. Now, scientists didn't want to go there. They had always wanted to believe in an internal or an eternal universe because they could say if the universe has always been around, then we don't need to have an explanation for how it came. We'll just say the universe is what's eternal. Now they discovered, ah, we we have to acknowledge that there is a beginning to this universe. The, the skies are telling the story. And how do, we, how do we find an explanation? Well, You say, well, it's something outside of nature, supernatural, and it's an uncaused cause capable of creating it all. Sounds a lot to me, like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe. And so people, Christians at first were like freaking out. Big bang. Oh, that's bad, right? No, it's great. The big, uh, so I mean, I got dynamite here to remind us of the big bang. Put the dynamite right there. Don't light it. It's, just, it's not real. Relax. <sighs> Dynamite's there to remind us that the Big Bang points to the beginning. And if you have a beginning, you must have a cause. And God is that cause. But it's not only uh, the, the beginning that they say. Oh, you know, let me read a quote. This, this is a good quote. Um, there, was a, uh, there is a astronomer by the name of Robert Jastrow. And uh, he's an astronomer, a physicist, and when he discovered the beginning, and he saw it so clearly, uh, he changed his ways. Look what it says. For the scientist who has lived by faith and the power of reason, the story kind of ends like a bad dream, he said. That scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. scientists don't want to ever be shown up by the theologians. There's one more uh, thing that through the telescope we see, and that's what's called the anthropic fine-tuning principle. Let's put that up. Anthropic means man or created for man. 
fine-tuning principle. As they gaze into outer space and study exactly how our universe operates, one of the things that they find out is that some of the constants are these numbers that you know, dictate how fast the universe is expanding, how powerful is gravitational attraction. These constants are fine-tuned. I have a ukulele here, and, you know, with uh, a ukulele, you know that there's like a zillion different settings you could twist this knob to. Only one of them's right. And if, if you don't have it tuned just right, you get dissonance. Well, in the case of the universe, if, if these constants weren't exactly what they're at, not only would you have dissonance, you'd have implosion. The whole universe would implode, or minimally, life would be uh, un- incapable of existing. I'll give you a couple examples. Let's put a couple up here. The first would be gravity. The force of gravity, they've measured just how much gravitational force affects mass. And they have discovered that, wow, it is just right. And to say just right, it's, it's like 1 in 10 to the 60. T- 10 to the 60 is 1 with 60 zeros. I, I don't know. If there's, there isn't a name for that number. It's, it's huge. And what that means is that if you had a dial that had that many different uh, markings on it, and only one of them would be right. That's how precise the gravitational force is. If that gravitational force was any stronger, the universe would implode. If it was any greater, the universe would expand, uh, so thin out so much stars would not form. But as it is, it's just right and uh, you know, astronomers say, wow, lucky us that it is what it is. And then uh, let's move on to expansion rate. They look at the expansion rate of the universe and they're like, look how fast it's moving. And they began to study the implications of what would happen if it was moving a little faster. What would happen if it was moving a little slower? And they realized, oh my, that's the only rate that would work to sustain a functional uh, Uh, human inhabiting universe. And and it goes on and on. If you think these two are the only, there are actually 35 constants. So my little ukulele with four strings doesn't work. Let's put up a different instrument. 35 different (laughs) tunings in the universe that have been identified so far. They're they're discovering more all the time. So the number 35 is, uh, you know, just at this present day. And scientists are scratching their head just going, wow. Look at that. We're lucky again, aren't we? Wow, look at that. Boy, are we lucky. And, and how do you explain this? These don't have to be what they are. They're all just right. It sure looks like some powerful, brilliant, and loving being has made the universe and attuned all these things to exactly the right place. You know, uh, George Greenstein is is an astronomer. He's been an agnostic, you know, his whole career, saying, oh, we know nothing about God. We can't know God exists. But as he has studied this fine-tuning, in fact, scientists say that the fine-tuning is the most powerful demonstration of God's existence of all. It's a little hard for us to get our minds around because the numbers are so big and some of these principles so abstract. But those who can understand them all are just saying, there we go again, there we go again. There we go again. And they're realizing this is it. Let me show you what George Greenstein at a conference on astronomy. He came out, if you will, as a theist. Here's what he said. 
the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency must be involved. It is it possible, he says, that without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being. The anthropic fine-tuning principle. All right, let's go to the... Oh, I should put my ukulele over there as a reminder of this principle. And now let's go to the microscope. Uh, Microscope, you know, I, I studied... Uh, microbiology or cellular biology in school. And in the ancient days, you know, that we did not have the capacity to look at the cell. Well, we do now, and it's absolutely remarkable what we're discovering. In fact, back in 1957, Watson and Crick, Crick gazed through a, a microscope, and they, they began to understand the complexity of the human cell. I'll tell you why this is really important. We're going to talk again about natural selection in a moment, but Darwin's theory supposedly explains how a single cell can become a human being, but it has no explanation, does not apply at all to how uh, just chemicals can become the first cell. In the old days, they said, well, that's not a big problem. You know, what is a cell? It's a bubble, essentially, and a bubble's bubble, you know? And so there's, they didn't think a cell was very complex. Well, now that we have the capacity to study the human cell, (laughs) it's unbelievable the complexity of the human cell rivals the complexity of the body itself. What what Crick and uh, Watson discovered is that cells had a nucleus, and the nucleus was like, like a factory that created proteins, the building substances for human life. And the, the nucleus had DNA, you know, that these chromosomes were made up of an information-storing chemical. And this information was like a blueprint that explained how the human body could be formed. And the DNA would separate to create RNA, which is a copy of that information that could be utilized in uh, a, a machine that put together amino acids in just the right sequence to create functional proteins. And then another machine folded this sequence of amino acids into the right shape, and these proteins were just being pumped out. I mean, it's mind-boggling what they discovered. And when I say information, this is the part that's just amazing. We're talking a lot of information. Right now we're in a computer age, you know, we talk about how many gigabytes, you know, giga, you know, mega, whatever does your computer have. Uh, Folks, let me just demonstrate here. So I'm going to hit my hand. Right now, I just knocked off skin cells. They're, They're right there, right? And each one of them has within them the complete blueprint of my body. Do you realize that? This DNA sequence of coding is information. And folks, information, and lots of it. Since I'm not a computer guy, computers don't speak my language, but I love books. And books are information, a little bit more accessible to me. And I love burgers. And so I've got a book on burgers, all right? This book is a how-to-make-hamburgers book, all right? It's all you need to gain information to make a hamburger. Now, to have the information to make a human body, you need a little more information. So in the human cell, in every human cell, if you add up how much information is found in the DNA, you would need 10,000, the equivalent of 10,000 of this 250-page book. 
And so 10,000, if you were to stack them right here, they would uh, yield, let's see what we got here, 80 or 800 feet. That's an 80-story skyscraper of these books stacked up in every single human cell. In one sense, we can marvel, wow, that's a lot of information found in every cell. In another sense, you say, wow, is the Lord efficient that in that amount of information, he can have all this blueprint for how the human brain and body all works. But it's information. And folks, where you have information, you must have intelligence. Even when it comes to burgers, somebody really smart wrote this book. And when it comes to having this information in the human cell, to say that it got there by accident just doesn't make sense. Random processes do not result in information. I'll demonstrate through texting. Every once in a while, I get a text from my wife like this. When I get a text from my wife like this, this... This is called a butt call. Maybe you've had one of these before. She's been fumbling around in her purse or whatever, you know, and bumping letters and, you know, sitting on her phone. And random processes result in texts like this, nonsensical. Now, sometimes I get a text like this. I love you, sweetie pie. I get a lot of these, huh? And never once have I thought, before I savor in the message of this text, I should consider the possibility that this is a butt call, that she's just been bumping numbers in her purse, and by chance she stumbled upon this meaningful message. Never! When I see letters arranged into words and words arranged into a sentence and a sentence that conveys very important meaning, I immediately say intelligence and not chance is behind that. And folks, it's a lot more than a text. We're talking an 80-story skyscraper of information that dictates how the human body is formed. And you say, oh, it's just chance. No! Information. Where there is information, there is intelligence. So where, where there's a beginning, there's a first cause. And where there's fine-tuning, there is a fine-tuner. And where there's information, there is intelligence. And, uh, do I have any more here? And where there is design, there is a designer. Let's talk about design. So what is an otoscope? Have you seen these? The doctors use these to look into your ears. This is a scope that looks inside the human body. It dawns on me the right scope I should have up here is an endoscope, right? You know what those babies are? They look in your end. So I'm, uh, pray for me, this Friday I have an appointment with the, not to have my first endoscopy, but to schedule my first endoscopy. And they're fun, right? Right? Good times for all? Yeah. Not looking forward to it. But these scopes look inside of the human body. And I, this is where I just was so fascinated as a biology student. Because as a pre-med student, we spend endless hours studying the complexity of the human body. And it's complex. There is design that is mind-boggling. 
I mean, take the brain, for example. Scientists, doctors are still absolutely puzzled by how in the world does this computer-like organ capable of generating complex thought, beautiful art, relational love, you know, complex movement. The brain is absolutely staggering, but it's not just the brain. The whole body is filled with machinery that is absolutely brilliantly designed. And when you have design, you have a designer. It was William Paley back in the 18th century. He's a philosopher who used the analogy of a clock. I have the inner workings of a clock. I went and and, uh, here in Naperville, there's the Elgin clock shop. And the guy there was so kind. He gave me this as a prop. Uh, Paley said, he was called the watchmaker's argument. And he said, if you were walking in the woods and you stumbled upon a watch and opened it up and you saw these complex mechanisms, would you conclude that, wow, that's amazing how that just happened all by itself? No. You'd say that necessitates a brilliant designer. And similarly, when we look within the human body and we see the design that's there, it screams, there's a design. Now you say, but Jeff, remember Darwin. Remember Darwin. He invented or discovered the mechanism of natural selection by which all mystery is removed. And now we say, oh, I get it. One cell becomes the human body all by itself. You know, I, I, thought, I, I, I thought that Darwin had explained away the mystery of the complexity of creation until I became a biology major and was able to dive into Darwinism and study the mechanism of natural selection intensely. And I'd like to remind you what it is, if you'll allow me. Um, uh, natural selection is the theory that mistakes happen. That's really what it is at essence. They're called mutations. A mutation is when a cell goes rogue, when it's, uh, you know, systems. Uh, you know, break and and, then the DNA uh, gets messed up and something that's not supposed to be there is there. And, And Darwin speculated, what if a mistake actually had benefit? It was a good mistake. Those don't happen a lot. I know that from my computer, you know. On computer, my computer, my laptop goes rogue a lot. You know, I've got little spinny wheels, you know, force quits, and I just want to throw the thing against the wall. Never have I had something go wrong where I'm like, you know, that's really convenient. I really love that that's gone wrong. I could turn that into an app, you know, and so. No. Mistakes are almost always bad. But Darwin said, what if a mistake... A mutation had benefit. And what if this benefit actually provided a competitive advantage uh, in this organism over its peers? And it won the girl, essentially. And it, it reproduced, passing on this trait at a greater frequency than its competition. Wouldn't we see that mutated trait increase in the population sample? That's natural selection at its core. And they used like the peppered moth as an example. You may have read about this in your biology text. The peppered moth was this black and white moth, and uh, then one went bad. Uh, the, the, there was a mutation where it was all black. And they said, you know, in these forests where the trees are polluted and the bark is dark, this black moth is camouflaged and actually survives more, and so we're seeing more and more of these black moths. And you know, I do, so I think that natural selection is a mechanism. 
And I think it can explain what's called microevolution. Microevolution is the change that occurs within a species like the peppered moth and more of the black guys doing well. But folks, this mechanism is being called upon to explain how a single cell microscopic amoeba turns into the mind-boggling complex computer machine called the human being. And that is asking more of the mechanism than it's capable of providing. And you say, well, then why do so many scientists cling to it? Because it's all they got. You know, if you are so in love with nature and the natural that you refuse to acknowledge the possibility of the supernatural, then you've got to look to purely naturalistic explanations. And if you see this natural selection working with some moths, well, then you'll say, that's what works to explain it all. And it just isn't enough to explain it all. I became convinced of that. And so I had the most profound night of my life. I was, again, like 20 years old. I had been searching for the better part of a year for evidence for God's existence. And I was studying for an animal physiology exam. It was midnight. And it's a miracle I was still awake at that time. I had the study room in the dorm all to myself. And I was looking at my hand. Uh, I still do it this, to this day, remembering that profound moment. Because I was moving my hand like this, contemplating all that goes into this simple motion. Going Right now, my brain is deciding to move like this and sending messages through a system of wiring called the nervous system, where chemical electrical agents are sending this message to move this hand like this. And the hand can move only because there's a skeletal system, this, this framework of solid structure of bones and these joints. I mean, the hand's got a lot of bones in it. These joints that are beautifully arranged with this great system of bending. And God made it so that there's four long fingers like that and one kind of stubby one going off on the side that's kind of thick and strong, the thumb, and it, boy, it works brilliantly. Engineered, engineering marvel. And then this skeletal system has attached to it ligaments and muscles, and I had studied the muscular system and the brilliance of muscle cells, how they work, blew my mind. And then I thought of the the circulatory system, this piping that is bringing energy and oxygen to each of those individual muscular cells. And then I thought of the lymphatic system, another system of piping that's taking these waste materials away. And then I I thought of the skin that's wrapping around that protects from disease and has temperature sensitivity and touch sensitivity that allows the hand to be... I'm like, do I believe that happened just by an amoeba sitting around long enough that eventually all by natural means... No, that is absolute genius is what that is. And then I walked to the window and I gazed out at the stars. Never forget it. Clear night, stars in the sky. And I started saying, you know, there's got to be an explanation for why this universe came into being. There's got to be, why do I just assume that it's there? No, there must be an uncaused cause. There must be an agent of explanation that brought it all into being and one who fine-tuned this universe out of compassion and love to make it exactly what we needed. And then add to all this reason, the Spirit of God spoke. You're like, oh, now you lost me. Well, it happens. 
God in my, I didn't hear anything audibly, but in my heart, I heard God say, Jeff, you know I am real. It just kept repeating, you know I am real. And I wept like a baby. I'm not a crier, you know that. But I cried, and I'm like, God, I know you're real. And I felt his love, and I pledged my life to him in that moment. And I'm not kidding you. You can ask my wife. She was dating me on both sides of this moment. My life was utterly transformed. There was suddenly a joy and a passion and a courage and a love that this real God who I had finally connected with, he changed everything for me. And so I, yeah, we'll applaud him as I will applaud him. At first, I questioned his invisibility and said, why don't you make yourself more obvious? And then he said, Jeff, I make myself plenty obvious. And he did, and he does, and he still will. And so I pray for those of you who still wrestle with doubt that the facts will give you faith. I pray for those of you who aren't believers yet that you would examine the evidence. There are so many great books about apologetics. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The the evidence for God's existence goes so deep. I pray for those of you who have friends or family who don't believe, and maybe the Lord's wanting you to bring this message or elements of this message to them to get them thinking and wondering, and you'll be an agent to help them find the Lord. But the truth, the facts, the evidence is there, and so is our God. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for questioning your ways. You are right, Lord. Nice work. Sure, make yourself obvious through the world that you set us in. Great idea. God, would you proclaim your glory? Would you make your reality and character known to everyone in this house? and to the friends and family that they're praying for right now. And God, we do pray that person after person after person in the days ahead will become convinced you are real and wonderful and that they will find reconciliation with you through Christ and that they will find joy in life with you. Lord, do that work. We're excited to see what you have planned. In Jesus' name, amen.